Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Oh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, where I take you into the lives of people all around pro football. This week, I'll take you into the life of Ryan O'Callaghan, the former offensive tackle for the Patriots and the Chiefs. 2017, Ryan O'Callaghan came out without sports as gay, and he's written a book. It's called My Life on the Line, How the NFL Damn Near Killed Me, and ended up saving my life. He wrote that book with Sid Ziegler of Outsports, and it's a pretty dramatic book, and I believe our conversation was fairly dramatic. I talked to him during my training camp trip in August in California. You'll definitely want to hear that. We'll also talk to Brandon Cooks, the wide receiver for the Rams, Uh, who's had a great career. He's still only 25 years old. And um, he'll reflect a bit on his career so far with the Saints, Patriots, and now with the Los Angeles Rams. But first, news has just broken that Eli Manning is going to be replaced as the starting quarterback of the New York Giants by rookie Daniel Jones, the sixth pick in the 2019 NFL Draft. And I think I've read so much in the last few hours as I'm taping this a little after 6 p.m. Eastern time on Tuesday. I've read so much of people talking about Eli Manning and the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And uh, I just want to talk for a moment about where I see that right now. I'm currently one of 48 voters for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and it's always a difficult job, and it's a job that I think the people who do it take uh, very seriously, having done it now for almost three decades, uh, sitting in that room. It's a, uh, at times, a, a gut-wrenching uh, process, but I'm, I'm just... I, I, I sat here today watching and listening to a lot of people talk about Eli Manning. And uh, I think what, what really interested me in the discussion about Manning is all of those people who believe that Eli Manning is an automatic walk-in Hall of Famer. And obviously, here's a guy who has two of the most impressive victories in the NFL in this century. Um, Obviously, the New York Giants have beaten the New England Patriots twice in the Super Bowl, 
and beaten Tom Brady and Bill Belichick both times. And in both games, Eli Manning was the MVP of those Super Bowl victories, once beating an 18-0 New England team. And uh, he, he, he has a fantastic case for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. The one thing I've always said that I like about the Hall of Fame process is that it's, it's, a, it's a great idea to have what essentially is a cooling off period after a player's career. And I'll never forget after he won the second Super Bowl seven years ago uh, that most people who cover pro football and who uh, opine about pro football we're all saying that that's it, Eli Manning is going to the Hall of Fame. And my feeling about all, all of these things is that unless it's a Barry Sanders, Dan Marino, Brett Favre, Reggie White type of situation uh, where you know that the guy is clearly a lock for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, I always like to let a let a player's career or a coach's career uh, sort of speak for itself over the entirety of his career. It's why I think it's 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 wrong when a guy is in mid-career to try to say, "Oh, this guy's definitely a Hall of Famer." You know, Eli Manning has a a very good case for the Pro Football Hall of Fame with two Super Bowl victories, two Super Bowl MVPs to go along with it. But I think also you have to look at the entirety of his career. In no year that Eli Manning ever played quarterback, uh, in none of the 16 years that he ever started at quarterback in the NFL, and his career's not over, so there might be more. In no year was he ever the best quarterback in football. In no year was he ever one of the two or three best, at least in my opinion. He was close a few times. but And I think that has to be part, uh, that has to be part of the equation. Over the last seven years of all the quarterbacks, I've done the statistics on this, over the quarterbacks who played regularly over the last seven years, Eli Manning and Joe Flacco, uh, were the two worst uh, statistically in the NFL. That counts for something. It counts for something that over a long period of time, not just very recently, I mean, Eli Manning is 8-26 and 26 in his last 34 starts. Uh, it's, it's more than just very recently. He is, Eli Manning has had a prolonged um, run of mediocrity at quarterback. That has to count when you consider whether a guy in the golden era of quarterbacks is a Pro Football Hall of Famer. And he could well be a Pro Football Hall of Famer. But I think that is why we let a guy's career marinate a little bit afterwards. We, we consider it. We compare him to guys in his same era of football. And... Whatever year it is that he comes up for consideration for the Hall, you know, 2027 or 28, whenever it is, who knows? Um, I think it will be it will be a time when people will be able to sit down, think about it, and uh, it won't be this knee jerk reaction that says automatically, yes, he's a Hall of Famer, or 
uh, you know, conversely, some people are saying absolutely not. He's not a Hall of Famer. Let's judge a man on the entirety of his career, and let's do it after he retires. Now, let's get to my conversation with Ryan O'Callaghan, which took place uh, in August in California, uh, and uh, a really entertaining 40 minutes with Ryan O'Callaghan. I must say that I have never done a podcast conversation at a vineyard Never mind one of the most beautiful vineyards I have ever seen. We are in the Napa Valley uh, at Domaine Carneros, and really it's one of the best vineyards. Uh, and I'm a little bit of a wine snob. I've been to Tuscany. I've been to a few places. This is really one of the most beautiful vineyards I've ever seen. It's lovely. It's about a 12 to 15-minute drive from Raiders training camp in Napa, where I was earlier today. But now um, I'm so happy to be joined by uh, Ryan O'Callaghan, the uh, former uh, NFL offensive lineman um, who uh, in 2016 came out uh, as gay after retiring from the NFL. He played in the NFL, played 51 games with the Patriots and Chiefs. And he was a fifth round pick of the Patriots uh, in 2006. And uh, really uh, was, a, uh, was a very good player for his time in the league uh, and has an incredible story to tell about his time in the league and also about his life both before and since, and since uh, he has come out as gay. Ryan, thanks for uh, coming over, and thanks for joining me here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's a beautiful spot to do this. It really is. It's fantastic. So um, I've got 8,000 questions for you, and unfortunately I'm only going to get to about 17 of them. Okay. But anyway, I, I guess I, I want to start off with, uh, I'm just going to ask you, we're going to play this. As your book comes out, you wrote a book with Sid Ziegler of Outsports, who originally wrote the story of you coming out. And I'd like you to tell me a little bit about the book, um, how it came to be, and what your thoughts were when you decided to do it. Yeah. So I, I met Sid. Sid runs Outsports, which is the largest LGBT uh, athletes publication online. And so I met Sid, uh, we talked, we did the original coming out story, and then after that ran, we were approached by uh, a publishing agent, and um, he presented the idea of writing a book to tell my life story, and um, I thought that was a great opportunity to maybe reach you know, people who didn't see the original story and get more in-depth about you know, the ups and downs of my life and, and, and what it was, um, what it was like to play as an as a out athlete. So. I ended up signing a, a great publishing deal and um, one that will really benefit my charity because every, every penny that I make from the book is going directly to uh, the foundation I started to help support uh, LGBT athletes with scholarship and support. And um, So yeah, I, I, I see it as a great opportunity to give back to the community and maybe help someone in a position similar to what I was um, who, didn't, you know, who didn't have a role model like I didn't. Um. Your book is called My Life on the Line. Um, let's, let's go back and let's start. Um, let's kind of start at the beginning. When did you know you were gay? I knew I was gay when I hit puberty. 
before that, I knew I was different. You grew up in Northern California. Yeah, I grew up in far Northern California. It's very conservative, small town of Redding. And, um, you know what I love about your life as a kid? What's that? What I, that I read about? You're in the Shasta County Hall of Fame. <laughs> Okay, Athletic Hall of Fame. Yeah. And Megan Rapino is also in the Shasta County Hall of Fame. Yeah. I Ma- love that. Megan and I got inducted in the same time. It's it's, it's crazy, too. You know, uh, LGBT pro athletes from the same small town and um, both of us representing and doing our part to give back to the community. Yeah. I'm sorry I interrupted you. So no. how did you know and what happened? Well, I, I knew for sure once I hit puberty because once you hit puberty, you start to get you know, actual attractions and desires. And that's when I knew for sure that, that I was gay. And for years, I I thought, okay, maybe it's a phase. Um, I tried real hard to find anything, anything attractive about a female. And I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. And then as the years went on, I was more and more attracted to men. And, you know, I, I quickly realized I'm gay and I can never tell anyone. And... What was that like for you in a very macho sport like football? Well, it, it was tough, but you know, I, I, I chose football as a cover for my sexuality. So you call in the book, you call football your beard. Yeah, so, <laughs> that's amazing. So, when you uh, think about it. You got to the NFL basically by faking it. <laughs> yeah, well, for those people who don't know, a beard in the gay community is typically the female. A, a closeted mandates to yeah. throw people off. So football was, was my beard and that was always my excuse for not dating or, you know, cause I played on a lot of the stereotypes where no one would ever think that a macho football player could actually be gay. And, you know, I, I used all those stereotypes to my, to my advantage and it worked for quite a long time. You, you went to Cal and were you, did you have NFL goals at the time, or did you just think, I'm going to Cal, it'll be a good place to go to college? You know, I, all throughout my life, I never had long-term plans. I, I just, I hated myself, and I never had a long-term outlook on life. Did you hate yourself because you couldn't be honest with yourself? Yeah, I, I was absolutely miserable, and, and I couldn't be honest with myself or anyone around me, and I thought I had all these, you know, friends that were close to me, but they didn't really know who I was, and so at Cal, I, I, I got the scholarship, I was playing, I was doing really well, and then as soon as I started to get attention from, from different scouts and, and moving up the rankings that some of these uh, sports broadcasters do, then it kind of became a reality that, okay, I can, I can keep this gig up a little while and, and use it to my advantage. And did it make you like football or not really? <laughs> you know, the one thing I really like about football was, was game day and just competition. I love to compete, whatever it is. I always want to win. Um, but game day specifically, because you know, in my mind, I always had crazy things going on and thinking that I was about to be outed for some reason, even though I wasn't doing anything that would lead someone to suspect that. But I knew game day, everyone was so intensely focused on the game that I can somewhat let my guard down a little bit and not worry about it. How were you able to date, if at all, in high school and college? I, I didn't. I, uh, I conveniently You totally buried everything about yourself? Yeah, everything. I, I didn't I didn't date. I I really didn't even look at stuff online because I didn't want to keep things going in my head um, and you know, start get caught looking or something like that in in public and there was a couple of times I talk about one of them in my book where my freshman year at Cal I was at a bar and just with a bunch of buddies and a girl kind of walks in the door and orders a glass of wine at a bar where 
you don't order wine. And she comes in an empty bar and sits on my lap. So I immediately thought all my buddies were setting me up. So I, I had to leave with her, and they all saw me leave with her. So there was a couple of times where I, you know, I had to bite the bullet and um, do what I had to do, but I wouldn't call that dating. That was just uh, trying to throw my straight buddies off. But that one experience in my mind, you know, kind of bought me a couple of years of my buddy saying, oh, remember that one time he left with her? Yeah. You know, it was totally unreasonable What did you thoughts. do that night with her? <laughs> Everything. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It was about as difficult as it gets. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, what about your parents? When, when did they know and how did you tell them? So I told my parents were in that first group of people I came out to. So soon after I uh, came out to the psychologist that worked with the chiefs. Um, That's she, a heck of a story, by the way. That psychologist, you got to tell this story a little bit because yeah. she stayed after you. Yeah. She would not let you go away because there was a time when you were seeing her for a while she was helping you. And then she was getting a little bit too close to you, wasn't she? And a little bit too close to the truth. Yeah. And I, so my last year in Kansas City, I, I had really got into painkillers and um, I was a junkie. It was bad. And I thought I was doing a good job of hiding it. And I was uninjured. I was injured. So I wasn't totally around the facility a whole lot. But I would still come in and do uh, physical therapy. And David Price was the trainer at the Chiefs at the time. And he noticed I was acting funny and... One morning, he pulled me in my, into his office, and he suggested I go speak to someone. Now, he didn't know what was going on with me. He, he knew I was taking pills because the team prescribed them. And, um, heck, at one month, I had nine prescriptions alone from the team, just from the team alone. But, so he knew I was taking pills, and uh, he suggested— What was your injury at the time? Uh, it was either my shoulder or my left groin because um, I've had, what, five shoulder surgeries on my left and— one of my rides so it was one thing after another really and so David set me up with Dr. Wilson and uh after chatting with her for for months she broke me down and she was the first person I told that was the first time I ever said the words I'm gay was to her and how old were you 29 and you know I told her my whole plan my whole life was to play football and, and kill myself and then let's not just skip over that I told her my whole plan was to play football and yeah. then kill myself. Yeah. What was your plan, actually, and how did you arrive at it? I, I was convinced from a young age that my family would never love me if they knew who I really was. Just the things you hear as a child, every time you hear someone you know, say the word faggot or talk bad about a gay guy or see something on TV and you know, make fun of that. You know, if you have a closeted kid, they hear every one of those times you say something, and it sticks with them, and... Did anybody in your family ever talk like that? Yeah, a lot. And, you know, that was also you know, 25 years right, ago right. When, it, when it was happening more. But, um, you know, not to gloss over it all, but since then I've learned that most of the things they said were out of ignorance and not hate. Right. But once again, as a kid, you don't know that. You're just looking at the people you love and, and look up to talking badly about, you know, who you are. And, and then you feel like you can never be honest about that. Yeah. Let's get back to the doctor now. Sorry. Uh, and, yeah. and, and what happened when she did break you down? Yeah, so months went by speaking with her, and, and I came out to her and then told her my plan, and then she 
basically convinced me that, you know, if you're just going to kill yourself anyways, you might as well tell the people you're most worried about and find out if you need to. And that's such a basic idea. It's so it's common <laughs> sense, but I was so blind to the outside world and the any positive outcome. That never even crossed my mind. Um, as soon as she convinced me of that, I, I started by telling my best buddy that lived with me. And then I went back home to California and told my aunt and uncle, told my parents. And um, What'd your mom and dad say? <laughs> so I, I hadn't really been speaking with my parents the months leading up to it because in my mind I was pushing them away to make it easier on them for when I right. killed myself. And um, So I called them and said, hey, you know, I'm going to stop by. We need to talk. And so we all sat down in, in the family room and uh, I broke down and, and I just, I ended up telling them, um, just told them, you know, this is what's going on and, you know, I'm gay and it was quiet for a second. And then my mom got up, gave me a hug and she had a look of relief on her face. Well, it, it turns out she thought that I was going to tell them that I was terminally ill because like the way I was like, hey, we need to talk and, yeah. so she, you know, she was almost relieved, but um my dad at the time was quiet. He, uh, it took him a little while to, to come around and, and, you know, looking back at the, I might've expected him to be okay with it quicker than he was, but you know, he, he spent 29 years picturing his son as something that he wasn't. So of course it's not just gonna, you know, be totally on board overnight, but I'm happy to say we have a better relationship now than, than we've ever had wow yeah it's not what did he eventually say to you i'm curious well basically that whole first year after i came out it was almost like i didn't tell him we just didn't talk about it or anything <laughs> and uh time went that's a dad yeah, that, yeah exactly <laughs> and time went by and um that whole shoot year year and a half after i came out i didn't date anyone i had to get my life together i you don't go from hating yourself to being fine overnight so i focused on that and as soon as I started talking to other guys and thinking about dating, I ended up meeting someone. And the first time I introduced my parents to someone that I was dating was right before the Shasta County Hall of Fame. And I was going to bring him. I did bring him. Uh, so we went by my parents' house before that. I introduced them. And so after that whole night went down, um, my dad, next day or a couple days later, he said, well, Brandon seemed nice. So that was like the first time he really acknowledged and I think it set in and um, since then it's it's been great. Yeah. That's really, a, that's a great story. Yeah. It really is a great story. Yeah. I, I'm, it's, it went, you know, a thousand percent better than I ever imagined as a kid or, you know, before then that it would yeah. ever go. Um, I'm with Ryan O'Callaghan, former Patriot in Chief. Uh, he's got a new book coming out in September. As a matter of fact, when you hear this, the book will be on the shelves. Um, the book is called My Life on the Line. It's written with Sid Ziegler. Um, so, Ryan, I think I, I'd like to basically find out now, what do you think held you back over the years from telling a soul? It was mostly shame. I, I was ashamed of myself, and I, I, after spending so many years of trying to change it, I realized I couldn't. Um, 
I just sank deeper and deeper into depression and, and just just lived day to day. Uh, you know, football was a great place to hide. I never felt like I was going to be outed with the team or anything like that. So that didn't really encourage me to, to come out or anything like that. Um, how was it playing for the New England Patriots, this the greatest franchise in football at the time? Yeah. You walked in in 2006 as a first-round pick, and you end up starting right away. Yeah. And so how was that experience, and what was the pressure like? What was it like to play for Belichick? Yeah, well, the Patriots are still the greatest franchise. But uh, <laughs> um, I always claim the Patriots over the Chiefs just because Mr. Kraft's been awesome. But, uh, yeah, yeah when, I, when I walked into that facility the first time, it was eye-opening. Um, you know, I, I never watched much NFL when I was in college, and I never watched much football in general. But but I knew of the Patriots. But you knew who Tom I, Brady I, I was. I knew who Tom Brady was. I knew who Bill Belichick was. And I quickly yeah. get online, and then you have a pretty good idea of what you're walking into. and. Uh, that first team meeting with Belichick, you know, the way people see him in the media that, yeah. you know, how he is, that's how he is. He's got a little more personality, you know, in the team meetings and stuff, but he's just very direct, monotone, um, unless you're getting yelled at, but, uh, but it was, it was a great experience. My, um, yeah, you know, I, I always tell people that I wouldn't have lasted six years in the NFL if I didn't start out in New England. Um, why? The coaches they have on staff are awesome. Like Dante Scarnecki is the he old line your coach line coach. I think One of the best line there. coaches in NFL history. He he definitely deserves credit for that. He he whooped me into shape and um, all the other rookies, and he just demands perfection every every little step you take. And there's not one minute of practice where you're sitting down on your butt like what happened in Kansas City. And um, he just he, he's got a way of preparing you for every situation and making everyone work together um if it, if it wasn't for for dante and that program i i really don't think i would have lasted that long um just because i you know going to kansas city after that you see a different nfl lines how he runs things and it's a lot different what was your relationship with tom brady like uh Tom was an awesome guy. So I, I was there before he was married and kids and all that. So, I, you know, I, I, I'm assuming he's a little different now. But my the first time, my first experience with Tom was during uh, during training camp. Um, the rookies have to take a van from the hotel to the training facility. And I was one of those guys that always tried to take the earliest van, just get there and get my stuff together. And I missed the van by like two minutes for whatever reason. And Tom was walking out. He saw me standing on the curb waiting for the next van, and he knew my name. He said, hey, Ryan, you want to ride? I was like, oh, sh you know, shit, this is Tom Brady. Okay. Um, so we hopped in his Lexus and chatted a bunch. He knew where I was from because he's a California guy too. And uh, he took me to the to the facility, and that was my first interaction really with, with Tom. And, you know, I, I got massive respect for him and, and what he's been able to do. It, it's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. As a player, uh, you had admiration for him, blocking for him. Yeah, I. <laughs> yeah, I, I knew how good of a guy he was, and and just the way he carried himself and how he was always prepared. You know, he just his presence kind of commanded respect. And one thing Scar, the old line coach, told me my rookie year. I think it was before the first game I started. Uh, right before we're about to go out there for team warm up, after the team meeting, before the game, 
Scar pulls me into the O-line meeting room and he puts on some film from, I think it was like the Ravens playing uh, the Bills or whoever we were playing. And he shows me a film of the guy I'm about to go against. And okay, and he tells me, okay, do it like that. And then he ends the film. He goes, just so you know, if you get 12 hurt, it's your ass. I'm like, oh, crap. Like, this, this is how it's going to start. But I didn't get him hurt. So that was a, that was a positive. <laughs> um, when did you go? I mean, you tell very interesting stories in the book about going from marijuana to bigger pain maskers, yeah. you know, opioids. Can you explain how you went from one to the other? Yeah, so the NFL, we got to talk about the NFL's drug testing policy. So I, I, I smoked weed starting a few years into Cal. Um, and then when I got to the NFL, you quickly find out what their drug testing policy is. And they test once a year for street drugs. And then they test year-round for performance-enhancing drugs, steroids, mm -hmm. those types of things. And you typically know when that test is coming, mini camp or training camp, and... Now, I had injuries all throughout my career. I'd have to take opioids just to get off the pain after surgery. Then I'd always stop. And Well, I messed up, and I tested positive for marijuana. Um, I ended up getting tested during uh, mini camp. And, I and you thought you weren't going to be tested until training camp? I thought I wasn't, but I'd still quit the same amount of time as I did right. every other year, and I passed it. But this year, I just I didn't pass it. Whatever happened, I didn't pass it. And what year was this? Uh, that was so my last. So that had to be 2010. Okay. Um, so because I failed that test, they sent me to Chicago to a bunch of meetings, and then you get put in the program, which is two years getting drug tested. Up to ten times a month. I think that's what it is. Yeah. Um, it was at least a couple times a week, but there's no way you can smoke marijuana again and not get yeah. caught. So if you get caught again, then your name's on that ticker on the bottom of the screen and you get a four-game suspension without pay. Without pay. And So I, I, I tested positive for marijuana, so then I couldn't smoke anymore. But Was that difficult? No. Um, you know, this might be controversial, but marijuana's not addictive. It's not. It's just yeah. not addictive. Addictive drugs are like opioids and different things, but right. marijuana's not addictive. Yeah. Um, so I just quit that and... Because I had prescriptions for the painkillers from the team, I was allowed to take those. Now, like I mentioned earlier, I, I one month alone I had nine refills on my painkillers from the team alone. Um, and after that last shoulder surgery I had, uh, I got hooked. They had prescribed me Dilaudid and Percocet and this, that, and the other thing. And from then on, I, I was I was hooked and. Um, I was going to an outside doctor. Just, I, I, I lied to her and told her that I couldn't tell the team how much pain I was in, so I needed her to prescribe me pills. And I was getting them shipped out from California, and so I quickly turned into a junkie. How, um, many, how many pills would you take in a day when it was at the worst? <laughs> uh, I was spending about 400 bucks a day at the worst, but it, it all depends what pill it was. Um, you know, when 400 I went, bucks a day is a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. Um, but I didn't care. I didn't plan on living. What was I going to do with the money? So yeah. I was just taking. When did you? Wait, let's go back to. That. When did you? When did you come to this idea that I'm going to play football and then at the end of my football career I'm going to kill myself? 
that was early. That was that was in college because I had no plans after college whatsoever. It was just play football and and that's my cover. And I happened to make it in the NFL. You know, then the plan continues. I had no other plan in life besides play football. What's your major in account? Staying eligible. No, I. Uh, <laughs> I uh staying eligible. Yeah, I I was It sounds like you went to went to Baloney Tech or something I, like that. You're going to Cal for I, crying I, out loud. Yeah, I well, so when I went there I thought I was going to do business. It takes a lot to major in business there and play football. Some guys do it, but so I went from business to psychology to sociology to interdisciplinary studies where you end up making up your own major basically. Right. So I I uh I have more than enough units to graduate those don't all go to the right thing yeah yeah okay so you sat there one day and actually said to yourself when i walk off the football field for the last time i'm going to kill myself what tell me about the plan well the actual plan of when i was going to kill myself happened after my last my last injury um with the Chiefs, I, I I had a bunch of shoulder surgeries, but I was always able to get by. But then I hurt my groin. Um, I'd always relied on my legs because my upper body was so weak. As soon as I hurt my groin, I tore a couple of muscles off, and they were gone. I didn't have my feet anymore. And as an old lineman, you need good feet. And that's when, you know, in my mind, it went, okay, oh, shit, time's coming. And, uh, you know, I, obviously I didn't give up all hope, or I would have just swallowed a bullet at the time um i don't know what i was waiting for or, or what but uh i just started building that cabin out on my property in missouri and um if you're gonna die somewhere that was a nice place you know it's, it's all ridiculous thinking about it now but do you still have the cabin no i sold that after after i decided that, you know i'm not killing myself i'm gonna live and everything and did you literally buy would you buy the cabin or build it no so i bought 42 acres um it had a little lake on it and it was a place to get away and then originally we were just going to build like a little storage shed out there to put like a quad in or something and then i saw it was a good opportunity to to add on and make it bigger and then in that process is when i got hurt that last time um and then one night in my mind i said okay this is this is where it's going to happen. Cause, so I own the property, but I rented a house from someone else. So where I lived nightly was a rental. It was me and two other teammates, my best buddy at the time. And I didn't want to do it there because they were all living there right. and it wasn't my house. So, I mean, how to be a considerate suicidal guy. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you really, I mean, I just want to get to the point of where you thought that uh, you were convinced all along that after you stepped off the field for the last time, you would kill yourself. How? Pills? Or no, gun. You'd kill yourself with yeah, a gun. Yeah, there were several times where I took enough pills that would have killed the average person. Um, part of me was just like, okay, if I die at this point, I die at this point. But, um, you know, I, I thought I was very comfortable with guns. I knew a lot about guns, and I... I figure that's a surefire way to go. Yeah. yeah. No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No pun intended. It just uh, it just seemed the easiest, most sure way to go about it. Um, I I would have been 
extremely high on pills when I did it, but yeah. Tell me when you decided I am not going to kill myself. What caused that? Yeah. Uh, so after I talked to Dr. Wilson, the first person I told was my best friend at the time who lived with me. Um, he was fine with it. He said, love you, buddy. Everything's fine. And then I, uh, he wasn't the one I was really concerned about the reaction. It was family. So after I drove back to California, I met with my aunt and uncle. Um, they were fine with it. And I met with my parents and it wasn't the end of the world. They, my, right. you know, my dad was, he got was to fine. be fine with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so after that, you know, I was, I was the whole time my childhood, I was expecting, you know, tables getting flipped and just the end of the world. And as soon as that didn't happen, you know, I kind of saw some light and I was like, okay, you know, I, I can make this happen. And then slowly I started telling other people over, over the course of months and told all my other friends and other teammates, told Aaron and um, Aaron Rodgers, your former quarterback at Cal. Yeah, so I told Aaron. At the time I told him, he said, love you, buddy. Everything's fine. Um, that ended up not being the case later. But So I got five little detours in our eight minutes left. Okay. One is that you write in the book very clearly that you used to, you used to be close friends with Aaron Rodgers. Yeah. After you told him you were gay, at first he said it was okay, and then you don't really have a relationship with him anymore. What happened? Yeah, after after I told him I was gay, everything was, he said, love you, buddy. Everything was fine. Then he flew me out to Green Bay, and um, we were hanging out on his couch just talking. He had just fired his assistant, and uh, so he was living alone, and um, he had he knew the situation I'd put myself in, you know, with money and everything else and options. What was I going to do? And he had uh, helped other friends out in the past just quietly and um, unexpectedly he asked me, you know, what's your plan? Let's go into business together, find something. Um, you know, he said he'll finance it, make his money back and something I can do. And like I said, I knew he'd done that for other people. So I thought, okay, you know, I didn't expect that, but that was like, you know, the golden ticket. And so I, I spent some time finding uh Finding reliable investments, because the last thing I wanted to do was lose the guy's money and yeah. um, cost our friendship and everything else. So I quickly found uh, this hotel in Tahoe that it needed work. Um, it was one of those rent by the month or week type things at that point, but had tremendous potential and uh, called up Aaron. And Aaron's notoriously tough to get a hold of, doesn't matter how good a friend yeah. you are. It, but anyway, so our last conversation was... Um, talking about getting a contractor out there to find out exactly what needed to get done. Well, during that time that I was looking for a business to invest in, Aaron had a bunch of rumors come out about him. Um, his ex-assistant, Kevin, had tweeted some things that some were interpreting as if they were in a relationship and you know that he was gay. And people kind of took it pretty far to the point where Aaron went on his radio show and denied the rumors um so yeah part of my last conversation with aaron was whether he should what he should say on his radio show or right. whether he should even say anything and so after that conversation with him about the contractor and that i never heard from him again so we were i knew him since high school all through college spent off seasons together and i never heard from him again after that um how many years ago was that that was 
end of 2011, beginning of 2012. Does that hurt you to this day? No, I'm genuinely over it to this day. And the only reason I even talked about it in the book is if you're going to tell your life story, you have to, yeah. you have to include the lowest moment. And, you know, I, I had just decided to live and trying to figure life out. And, you know, he offers me this awesome opportunity and I feel great. You know, things are going to be awesome. And then pulls it out from under me. And then that was the only time after I came out that I ever contemplated offing myself again. I just, I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. Um, you know, since then I figured it out and, um, you know, I, I've kind of learned that, uh, you got to rely on yourself and not other yeah. people offering you stuff. And, um, but you know, I, 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 as Bill Belichick would say, it is what it is. It is what it is. I, I, you know, part of me would like to know what the hell happened. Yeah. Then again, it doesn't really matter. Right. You know, um, won't really change anything. You know, he's got much bigger problems than our friendship to deal with now. Yeah. So, uh, let yeah. me ask you a bit about the NFL's drug policy. Okay. And about the fact that you can test positive for marijuana and get suspended but you could be prescribed opioids and obviously not get suspended. Yeah. So what should the NFL's drug policy be, in your opinion? I think in my opinion, whatever they do, it has to be the same for every team. Um, you know, I know California teams and Denver and, you know, it's, it's legal in the state. Yeah. But, you know, it's... I don't think you can let some guys smoke weed and some guys not. And, um, you know, <laughs> reality is if someone wants to smoke weed, they're doing it no matter what state they're in. So, um, but, you know, until it's federally legal, I, I think the NFL is going to have a tough time justifying just making it legal in certain states for players. What about opioids in the NFL? I mean, it seems so dangerous and how easy it was for guys like you. I mean, it almost killed Brett Favre in 2006. Yeah, I, I think much like concussions, doctors and, and the trained staff are realizing that it's a problem and, and they need to be careful with it. You know, after after you have a surgery, there's really no reason to prescribe someone, you know, a ridiculous amount of the lauded or something like that. Just start with the lower stuff, and if they need more, give them a little bit, but... You know, there's no reason to send us home with, you know, 200 pills of, you know, it's just not necessary. I want to ask you about the subject that we in the outside think must be a rampant topic of conversation in the locker room okay. of NFL teams, which is a lot of conversation, anti-gay conversations in locker rooms. But you say in the book that that really isn't the case. No, not at all. You did not find that at all. You found the NFL locker rooms you were in to be pretty tolerant places. Explain. Yeah, I. In the NFL, it was not. There wasn't homophobia, but there was kind of um, guys acting very straight. You know, talking about the different girls they got with and stuff. But the thing about the NFL is a lot of the guys are married. A lot of them have kids, and you got a whole bunch of different groups of guys and it's also a business it's a job you know at any other job you can't sit in your office and start bashing gay people you know and 
I think once guys get to that age where they're in the NFL, they, you know, you mature a little. You realize that, you know, you don't need to call stuff gay or call each other faggots for no reason. And, um, you know, that happened a little bit in college. But You mean people in the NFL are adults? Yeah, for the, for the <laughs> most part. I mean, in my mind, the one, like, homophobic thing that sticks out is one of the coaches used to always say no homo, like, after he would say just something stupid that yeah. could have been an innuendo. He would always say no homo, but that that was about the only homophobic thing I really. You know what? I I'll, I wasn't planning to talk about this at all, but my daughter is gay. Okay. And uh, she's married. And a couple of years ago, I was talking to a prominent NFL player who used that phrase to me in just a casual conversation, and I just said to him, "Hey." Let's let's just for a moment just forget you said that. Yeah. But I'm just going to tell you something. My daughter is gay. She's married. She has a child. And those are things right now in this year, in these times, you absolutely should not say. You don't really know me. How do you know who I am to be able to say something like that? Yeah. And and he was he was he almost put his head in his hands and said, yeah. I, I'm so sorry. And I hope he doesn't say it anymore. Yeah, I'm glad but, you said something because it yeah. takes people, you know, allies like you to stand up and say, hey, that's not right. I yeah. mean, there are, there's gay people everywhere. Some of you listening are married <laughs> to a gay person. You just don't know it. Yeah. They're on every football team. Just So I, that's, that leads me to, to, my, to my next question, which is since you came out, you don't have to say who certainly, but how many football players – have somehow got to you and said, oh, my God, I'm so glad you said that. I'm gay. Uh, NFL players? Yes. Uh, I could think of four. One retired. Um, but three active. Yeah, even a pro bowler. Yeah. I would never say names. Why, 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 is it, why is it that an active NFL player does not come out? The NFL is one of those sports where you have such a short amount of time to make as much money as possible. And I think guys see that coming out as being controversial and how it might affect their career in a negative way. And it's tough to get a guy to purposely, in his mind, jeopardize his career and his future by coming out. Now, I think if he realized how much happier he would be just being able to be himself and that his teammates would accept him, it would be different. Um, how do you change that? Have you urged any player who's currently in the game? Have you had any conversations with anybody about coming out? Uh, a retired guy, um, but you know he's got a family and stuff, so that's a different. That's right. tough. Yeah. That's tough. But uh, you know, I've, I've chatted with I've chatted with Goodell. Um, it's it's just it's tough. There's not really one good answer for what the NFL can do or. Or anything like that. You know, the NFL's taken a more public stance, showing they're supportive of, of gay rights and um, if there were players in the league. Um, but, you know, it's tough, like me, to get to get a, someone to kind of see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And, um, you know, I tell some guys, you got to look at the last Winter Olympics. Like, who was the most sponsored, highest-paid athlete? It was a gay guy that skied. So, like, if anything, it'll help you out a little bit. Was he maybe. a skater? It was no, not Rapone. It was Kenworthy, Gus, the oh, free oh, okay. skier. Yeah. All right, all right, all right. Yeah. Um, 
will we ever how, how far are we away from having one or more openly gay people playing in the NFL I don't think it's that long I, I, yeah I don't think it's that long off just if someone actively playing right now were to come out and they are you know a, a top tier player that'd be awesome and, and that would help a lot of people but there's plenty of college players who are out that could potentially make it to the NFL and that would you know kind of like what happened with Michael Sam but except you know make a team and 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 go a little further I, I I've I've in the course of this conversation I've thought of a bunch of things I wanted to say to you and one of them is that I think one of the most important things that you have discussed is the reaction of your parents because my daughter didn't come out until well after college yeah and because she was afraid yeah. of what we and other people would think and she had a huge weight lifted off her when we said I mean think about it I mean you you have children and your biggest goal in life with your children is for them to be happy yeah and to lead productive lives but I'd say number one is to be happy yeah okay so how can you be happy if you're hiding all the time yep. and you always you wake up every morning thinking isn't that exhausting to to have to think of how to hide this and so i assume it's probably the same way with you after you came out all of a sudden you said yeah the world the earth is still on its axis yeah we're we're going to be all right here yeah i mean and i think that it's such an important thing for young people particularly to realize that Okay, maybe one of your parents. It might take a little while for them to adjust to it. But I think, I think, the vast majority of parents are going to say, I love you. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. It is all about being happy. I, I, as soon as I came out and realized everything's fine, my whole kind of perspective on everything changed. Where I just, I do what makes me happy, and I realize that's more important than any physical possession. And, you know, even if someone's listening and, and you come out to your parents and they're not totally on board, you quickly learn there's a whole community of people out there that'll accept you like, you know, like you're their own. So it's, I didn't know that when I was closeted, but it's, uh, there's just, there's a huge group of people out there that would welcome you with open arms. Um, two quick things. You have had a couple of people in the NFL, and I'm probably thinking most notably Scott Pioli and Robert Kraft, yeah. who have been, and I'm sure there are others who I who I don't know, but I know those two people have been very good to you. Explain your relationship with them and their importance in your journey. Yeah, so I I knew Scott Pioli from New England when he was he's the guy basically who drafted you. Yeah, and yeah. Th and then when he went over to Kansas City as the GM uh, as in two thousand nine, you GM, were there. I went over there, and uh, so I, my entire NFL career, where I was with Scott Pioli, and. I got to know Scott just, you know, at first just in the hallway, hey, how's it going? But then he's one of those guys that likes to chat, and I, I, I would chat with him, and um, we just built our friendship off that. And obviously business is business, but you could still be buddies with someone. And um, Scott and I were just, we started talking, and, and one day we started talking about family, and we kind of realized we had somewhat similar upbringings with different problems within the family and so we were able to relate on topics like that and 
Um, I got, you know, pretty close with Scott. So after I came out, I, I felt like, you know, I owe it to him to tell him because he knew stuff was going on with me. Right. He knew I was seeing Dr. Wilson, the whole pill thing. And, you know, he was genuinely curious and concerned about how I was doing. So I, I told him and, you know, I, when I came out to him, you know, he he didn't know what, what the hell the big deal was. And I, you know, <laughs> looking back, <laughs> neither do I. But he, he's been on board <laughs> since the beginning. And um, we still talk frequently. And, and Scott's an awesome guy. And uh, Mr. Kraft, uh, he was in uh, Israel when he found out that I came out. And he had tried to call me from there. And um, as soon as he was able to get a hold of me, he invited me out to Boston. Um, he... Uh, Brought me to his office. It was after they won the Super Bowl again, and wanted to show me their new trophies. And and uh, he just we chatted for a bit. Um, you know that that was more than I. That meeting with him was more than I spoke with him the whole time. I was actually playing for New England, but he ended up. Uh, he's ended up being a huge ally of mine. Um, he even gave, he was pretty cool. He even took me for a ride in his helicopter, which was. <laughs> pretty awesome he's got a helipad right there outside the right. the facility but um yeah so he's been a huge ally of mine and supporter of 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 me and my charity and um yeah i, I can't say enough great things about mr Kraft. you have a bit of a star-crossed relationship now that you're out of the game with football what do you think of football now <laughs> i i have a tough time not associating football with those darker times of my life. Now, I respect the game and the players and what it takes to get to the highest level and, and to prepare week in and week out. But I, I just I have a hard time not associating football with those darker times. Um, you know, I do different things with the NFL, hosting groups of, of LGBT kids, and you know, I have massive respect for the game and the NFL itself, but... It's uh, you won't catch me watching a game on Sunday at 10 a.m. in Northern California at your home. Is the NFL on? No, maybe NASCAR. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you watch the Patriots Rams Super Bowl? Uh, not really. Little parts of it. I saw, what did you do I saw, that day? I saw highlight. Gosh, I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know what I did. I just, I just, I, I did see. You part, lived. Yeah, I lived. I saw parts of it. I just. Whatever I did, I was having fun. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we've talked for a long time. Is there anything else you want to say? No, I think you covered all the bases here. The wine's really good. Yeah, the wine is very good. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, we're at, I should say again, we're at Do Domain Carnero. We're in the Napa Valley. We're in one of the prettiest places on earth. And this has really been one of the most interesting conversations I've ever had. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I'm happy so, to be here. So, Ryan O'Callaghan, thank you. Um, plug your book and tell people why they should get your book. Yeah, so my book is called My Life on the Line. Um, it's just a story of the ups and downs of my life and, and, and what I went through and really what a lot of closeted athletes go through. And whether you're a football fan or, or an ally or... or uh, you know, don't even watch football. It's just good to to good to read it, and and uh, there's a lot of life lessons in there. You know, like what we talked about as far as watching what you say and and uh, really just respecting each other and um, learning to love yourself is a big one. 
but uh, you know my life's you know like an onion, a lot of stinky layers. But um, you know I, I've I've am happy that it's gone over well so far, and uh, my story has been able to impact a lot of a lot of people. Um, how about how about let me just I, I do want to ask you one other thing that I forgot. What about tell me about a young person? since you've come out has any young person said anything to you emailed anything to you talked to you about the impact of you coming out and tell me a story yeah I, i've gosh i've literally gotten thousands of emails but I, the most impactful email i've gotten is actually from a parent of a young person um it was when did this happen right after my uh my the outsports um article and it was a it was a, a dad of a young man who came out to him, and the dad had disowned him. He just said, "No, my son can't be gay. He's out of my life." And the dad saw my article and everything, and he emailed me, and basically told me that you know my story has made him reevaluate his thoughts, and he's going to reach back out to his son. And just something like that is now that all is worth an awesome it. Yeah, story. it's all worth it. I'm sure that there's been other similar situations it just i hate to be dark and stark at this point but that never would have happened if you killed yourself it's very true i'm every day i'm happy and and thankful to be alive and making the most of it ryan o'callahan have a good life i will thank you you too also this week on the nbc sports platform the PFTPM podcast. Mike Florio is joined by Juju Smith-Schuster. Chris Sims, the Unbuttoned podcast, has the week two film Deep Dive, which also drops on Wednesdays, just like my podcast. And now my conversation with Brandon Cooks, the wide receiver of the Los Angeles Rams. Brandon, I... I uh... I think you are really one of the most fortunate people in the National <laughs> Football League because, to me, if you're a receiver and you get to start your career playing with Drew Brees yeah. and Sean Payton and then you get to move on to Tom Brady, Josh McDaniels, Bill Belichick, and then you go to Sean McVay and Jared Goff, yeah. You're 25 years old. Yeah. You're still a kid in this league, even though you played five yeah. years, and you've already had the experiences of a lifetime. Yeah. And I just I wanted to know if if it hits you ever, the the sort of good fortune you've had and the great places you've been so far in your career. You know, it's one of those things. I, I definitely look at it in a way that I'm extremely blessed uh, to play with. Uh, two great organizations prior to here and now being here with Coach McVay and Jared Goff. Uh, I mean, all I can say is it's been special from the moment I stepped into the building, um, and I just look forward to continue to build that rapport. I want to ask you just a little history question about each place you were before here. You know, it, it struck me when you and Drew Brees, when you would watch games with the Saints together, or when I would watch games with the Saints, I would see, I would be sure that every game you were going to have an opportunity to make two or three big plays, that Breeze sort of had you in his sights right from the minute, almost from the minute you got on campus. <laughs> what was it like with him, and what, how did you build that rapport so fast at such a young age? I think it's what, you know, with any 
uh, quarterback that you got to build a rapport with. You know, as soon as you get in there, all you are is eyes and ears. And, uh, you know, my biggest thing was just throwing with him in the off season, every chance that I uh, got, uh, even before season started, to be able to just kind of get on that same page and to really uh, figure out what he was looking for. And I think that's just with any quarterback uh, that I play with. I think that's what it's all about, just get, laying that foundation down before you even get together as a team. When you ended up going to New England yeah. after that, you got mm -hmm. traded to the Patriots. Your first reaction, I remember I read something about it that, you know, obviously you were happy to go to, you know, with Brady and, and with Belichick. But in a football sense, how did your life change then going from the Saints to the Patriots and being in the Belichick scheme? Uh, to be honest with you, that's something I, I – uh, you know, I was just fortunate once again to continue to play this game and go to a great another great organization. Um, but other than that, I really haven't thought about that. I just kind of, you know, go with it and, uh, you know, make the best of every, every opportunity that I get. And I think that's what life is all about. Yeah. What was it for you that when you came here to the Rams, what's been your relationship like with Sean McVay? And what is the creative process like with Sean McVay? Because he seems from the outside <clears throat> really like a little bit of a mad scientist. Yeah. You know, uh, you talk about a guy, um, first of all, a coach that you can relate to, you know, him being so young. Um, you know, to be able to play for someone like that, that cares about this game, cares about your success. Uh, I mean, you come in here every single morning, that's the type of guy that you want to go to work for. Um, you know, he relates to us in, in such many, in many ways. Um, and I think it's just the fact that, you know, he's one of those guys, he's a coach's son, and he gets it. And I think that's what makes this relationship so special, not just between me and him, but between all the players uh, in him. And as far as, you know, his mastermind, uh, the guy is a genius. Um, he's doing it at a high level at such a young age, and I'm just so excited to continue to build with him um, in the years to come. You know, I want to ask you two Super Bowl questions. Um, when you think back at that game, um, and I spent some time with uh, Sean this morning, he's obviously got some regrets uh, that, you know, there's nothing you can do about it now, but about both in his preparation for the game and then a few of the plays that he called and things like that. What do you think when you look back at that game? Great experience or do you look back at it with some regret? Uh, I mean, it's a great experience. I think one of the biggest things that he talked to us about this offseason is just learning from the past. Uh, you know, and you look at that game, you, you're able to learn from it. And you can't just dwell on it. You learn from it, produce in the present, and, and you know, prepare for the future. And I think he couldn't say it any better. Um, you know, it's just a learning op. You know, you obviously would like to have changed some things, but, you know, life is not back to the future. You can't uh, rewind time. One play in that game that we talked about quite a bit today was the sixth play of the game when uh, I think he feels – like he wishes he would have emphasized taking some shots downfield. And on the sixth play of the game, that was the game that was the play that uh you might they might have been able to hit you uh deep downfield, but instead they hit Robert Woods underneath. And I think one of the interesting things about McVeigh is that he uses that as sort of a personal education 
tool. You know, that he's not going to say, oh, I blew that one. He's going to say, hey, listen, let's learn from that, and let's the next time maybe it'll be first and ten, we'll be in plus territory, and we'll say, hey, let's just take a shot. And I think he doesn't – he kind of blames himself for that rather than – you know, players because of what he felt he emphasized. He he's always seemed to me like a guy who he's willing to take the hits. You know, if things don't go right in the game. Yeah, I think this this is what make that uh, this team so special. You know, because he would like to be held accountable for that. But then at the on the flip side, if you ask us players, uh, we'll probably say the same thing. We got to find a way to make them right. We got to find a way to come up with those plays. So I think that's the beauty of it. Uh, this team is not about pointing fingers, um, but we look inwardly first and figure out what we could have done better individually, and then we try to make it work. Tell me what, as you look forward to 2019, what what gives you the optimism that you won't be one of those Super Bowl teams that, you know, has a little bit of a hangover the next year, but will come out still playing very, very well? I mean, first, we didn't win it, so there's no hangover to have. Um, and second, I think it's just the type of guys that we have in this room. You know, when we came out here, I think vividly right into OTAs on how we were firing off on all cylinders. Uh, we were ready to go out here and practice, and that hunger in, in each and every guy's eyes uh, is there, if not more, than it was last season. But the beauty about it is we have so much to learn from in the past season that we can uh, we can continue to grow. We're nowhere near our best. So I think that's what uh, exciting about that. What, if anything, did you do with this this off season with uh, with Jared Goff? Uh, is he the kind of guy who gets his receivers together at some point in the Absolutely. off season? Oh, yeah, yeah. What, what did you do? How much did you work? What are some of the things you guys worked on this off season? You know, I think. Uh that's been a thing that, you know, we got together a lot this offseason, not just him and I, but the, uh, the receivers as a group. Um, you know, in the first part of the offseason, before OTAs, uh, during OTAs, and then after OTAs. And as far as what we worked on, you know, just our, deci- our decision and timing. Um, and I think that was the biggest thing that you can work on. You can do so much when you're on air, but when you get that timing right, I think that's what helped us get into camp and come in and, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, start start off on the right foot. Um, two other things just about where you are right now in your career. I spent a little bit of time when um, when I was with the Texans with DeAndre Hopkins. Mm. And uh, I've, I've asked a few receivers this question about, you know, how much study you do of other players yeah. in the league. And I want to know, do you look at other receivers? Do you watch other receivers? Do you spend any time either during the season or the off season studying them? If so, what do you look for and what do you want to see? Absolutely. You know, for me, I look at guys that, you know, either are my stature that are still playing or who have played the game uh, and just try to pick up, you know, some, you know, some tricks here and there um, within their within their game. You know, specifically, uh, you know, I look at guys like Antonio Brown, um, you know, who I've gotten to know uh, for a while um, and how he's played the game. And I look at guys like Steve Smith and just his, you know, a guy that's fast but also uh, was really good at route running. Um, so typically I'm looking for how, you know, how they set guys and run their are routes. Are you looking for guys who are similar in size to yeah, you? Yeah, my same yeah. stature, yeah. 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 
what what would you say what would you say you've taken from Antonio Brown when you watch him? You know, uh, you talk about a guy, uh, you know, who, who definitely plays bigger than what he is. And, you know, how he goes about and goes up being able to catch those 50-50 balls, but at the same time create separation uh, within his route. He's not just a guy that goes deep downfield, but he runs the whole route tree. So definitely love seeing that. One of the things about DeAndre Hopkins I think is really interesting is that Last year, he became the first player in NFL history to catch more than 110 balls yeah. with zero drops. Mm -hmm. And you watch the highlights. It's almost like every week you see a ridiculous catch that he makes. So is that anything at all that you can look at and say, you know, I'm going to learn X, Y, and Z from this? Or is that not something that a receiver can learn from another guy? Yeah, you. Do. I don't think you're looking at how to catch a ball. Yeah. Um. You know, that's just one of those things that you do or you don't. But you're not looking at it on how he's catching it. You right. Know? I don't think uh, guys are looking at that, studying each other. Yeah. Is he a guy who, when you watch the game, you you have a lot of admiration for him? I got a lot of respect plays. for him. Yeah. 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 Um. One other thing I wanted to ask you is sort of the competitiveness in your division this yeah. year. Um, you know, I kind of look at the 49ers. If everything goes right, if Garoppolo's healthy, they're going to be pretty good. Yeah. You know, the Seahawks are always pretty good. Kyler Murray comes in, yeah. you know, with the Cardinals. How much do you pay attention to what the other teams in your division do, and do you really care what they do? You know, for here, we, you know, we kind of ignore the noise and, and, and just focus on what we have going on. Um, and being our best when our best is required. And I think, uh, you know, the more that we can do that consistently, uh, we don't have to worry about anything else. You know, a lot of respect for those teams. Those teams are going to be great. Um, you know, I've been playing at a high level for many years and have a lot of great players. But as far as just looking uh, how your division is going to turn out, we don't focus on that. We kind of just uh, stay in-house and focus on ourselves. We'll end with this. You've had a really good start to your career, a very, very productive start, you know, four straight thousand-yard seasons, uh, all the catches you've made. Do you sit back and think – I remember talking to Emmett Smith early in his career, and he said, when I leave the game, I want to leave footprints in the sand. I want people to know that I was there. Yeah. And I wonder, do you, do you think about – you're only 25 years old. Do you think about – the legacy you want to leave in football? Absolutely. You know, that's one of those things that, you know, I feel like I'm so far away from, you know, being very young, got a lot more years to come. Bless it. Um, that guy blessed me with that. But uh, it was just one of those things. I'm just continuing to focus on bettering myself every single year, uh, being the best that I can for my team. Um, and I think everything else uh, take care of itself. Hope you have a great year this <laughs> Thank year. Thank you Thanks very much, Brandon. I really appreciate it. Great seeing you. Thank you. Thanks to both Ryan O'Callaghan and Brandon Cooks for some enlightening conversation this week. And my thanks to you for listening this week. I look forward to having you back and giving you another podcast next week.